Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Nakrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk Arsenal are podcaster and deputy editor of Arsblog News, Andrew Allen, and podcaster and only person in the world who thinks Mohamed Salah is crap at football, it's Laura Kirk. Guys, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thanks. Uh, that's an amazing introduction for Laura, I've got to say. Oh, I can't I believe to... you've just said that to me. I, I, had, to, I, had, to, I had to bring this up. Do you, you know exactly what I'm referring to, don't you? I know you exactly explain. what you're referring to. So, look, <laughs> Salah is on fire at the moment. Look, I, I, I get it, all right? I just What annoys me, and I know we're going to talk about social media, um, is the level of um, hyperbole that goes on on Twitter. People come out with all sorts of nonsense about him living on a different planet, playing a different <laughs> sport, and I hate it. So, yes, I've made a few cynical comments about Salah, and I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, please don't come for me on that one. I do think it's brilliant. No, leave Laura alone. Just to explain, um, so we're recording this on Wednesday, October the 20th, and the Saturday just gone, Liverpool beat uh, Watford 5-0 on the uh, sort of BT Sport early game. And during it, as most people probably know, if you're even half uh, interested in football, Mo Salah scored an incredible goal. And um, as it went in, I had my Twitter feed up and myself and various other people, Liverpool and non-Liverpool fans, were sort of commenting on how great the goal was. And up pops Laura Kirk with this tweet. I've got it down word for word. Weekly competition for the most hyperbolic reaction to Mo Salah starts now. I just thought... Talk about misreading the room, Laura. Bloody hell. <laughs> just scored one of the greatest goals in... I was going to say greatest goals in Premier League history. I'm now being very hyperbolic. So you've just, uh, you've just made your point very well there. But <laughs> it was a great goal in there. I just thought it was quite amusing. You tweet that out. As everyone else is going, what a goal. He's the best player in the world. He's amazing. And you decided to get very cynical and very uh, grumpy about it, which I thought was very, very funny. And that is related very much to what we're going to discuss on, on this podcast, which I'll come on to shortly, the, the main gist of it. Before I do, sticking with Laura, uh, I want to have a bit of a chat about nostalgia. Um, <laughs> Laura is the queen of nostalgia. She used to present the excellent Berkhamsted Re- Revisited podcast, which later became the uh, equally excellent uh, Revisiting podcast alongside your friend Laura Gallup. And both were essentially about growing up in the noughties, uh, the former based entirely around your, your teenage diaries while growing up in Berkhamsted, a market town in Hertfordshire, as, uh, as Wikipedia tells me. Um, <laughs> So I'm sort of curious, really, to how much that process, because it went on for a few years and rightly got a lot of praise, a lot of acclaim. It was an excellent podcast. But how much that doing that podcast locked you into kind of looking back on your life more than you do looking forward? Or perhaps, indeed, you've always been inclined that way. And the reason I ask that is because I am incredibly inclined to look backwards. I'm forever reminiscing about the past, wishing I could go back to the 90s when I was a teenager um, to some extent, that's down to me being 40 and going through some sort of midlife crisis. But it's also um, it's just down to how I've always been. Even when I was in my 20s, I was kind of always looking back and, and my friends used to make a lot of fun of it. One of my friends, Mike, sort of, uh, once famously said, well, famously in my head, that he knows how I'm going to die. I'm going to drown in the pool of nostalgia because I'm forever <laughs> sort of looking backwards. Um, a little bit of reminiscing is absolutely fine, but I think not to the extent that you find yourself on the verge of tears watching Premier League 94, 95, which is... Uh, almost happened with me sometimes. Um, so yeah, I just sort of curious start with you, Laura. Really, what what is the balance with you? I'm guessing, given you're you're still horrendously young, you're only 29, that you're probably still more sort of forward looking than backwards. But do you find yourself, partly because of the podcast process that you went through, that you're sort of looking back a bit, reminiscing a bit too much, and you should be? 
Yeah, hundred um, percent. I actually think through writing a diary every day. So obviously the podcast is is based on the diary that I wrote every day for six years um, from the age of 13 to yeah about 1920 if you write down everything that happens every single day you are inclined to look back at mm-hmm. it and even when I was writing it I used to look back through it quite often um it's funny you say uh, about you know how old you are now and how you feel I actually had my school 10-year reunion a couple of weeks ago um so 10 years since we left uh, sixth form and I was I was very bothered by it if I'm honest I was very bothered in the run-up to it that I would be overwhelmed by nostalgia of being back in the room you know that we spent all our teenage years in um to the extent that I always you know I almost didn't go because I just thought I'm not sure I can handle how real you know this nostalgia is right, um, okay, yeah. that I, I might literally die in a pool of of, of the nostalgia <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> So unfortunately, yeah, I, I am someone who dwells quite a lot on the past. Um, I'm sure there's a joke in there about uh, where Arsenal are going, where <laughs> Arsenal have been from, but we'll leave that for now. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, having written down every single thing that happened to me as a teenager, my memory of those times is acute and unfortunately a lot more present in my everyday than perhaps people who did not write everything yeah. down. So I can remember it like it was yesterday, oh, yeah, yeah. every little thing. My friends are like, how do you remember that? I'm like, I wrote it down. Every single thing yeah, that happened, yeah. I can I can remember it. So maybe one day I'll grow out of it. But at the moment, I'm a bit of a bit of a live in the past type mantra, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And um, Andrew, this is why I asked you your age. Um, yeah. I sent Andrew a DM uh, a little while ago, uh, part in sort of part of planning for this podcast and ask you your age and you probably thought it was the weirdest question you've you've been sent on twitter for a long time but this is why i asked it you are 38 yeah you're very much sort of my generation well you're born 83 then doing my maths right yeah january 83 yeah i'm march 81 so we're pretty much the same age i'm a couple of years older um yeah same sort of question to you then are you are you very much a looking back man or are you still sort of very much focused on the future no, I mean, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, I studied history at university, um, so I, I kind of proactively made a choice in my studies <laughs> to spend three years sort of half drinking and half sort of reading books about the past. And yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I just think it's completely natural. Um, I know we're, we're not kind of on the Arsenal section yet, but I I could pretty much sort of pinpoint where I was in certain places and all the rest of it based on what matches were taking place and where and all the rest of it and you know a few years ago I was lucky enough to sort of co-write a book about the Invincibles I mean that is just nostalgia central right I mean if you'd start writing books about things that have happened 10 years ago uh, now 17 years ago unfortunately Um, so yeah it's yeah it's just something that's kind of completely ingrained in me really Um, yeah my dad was a sort of art historian as well so he was constantly looking in the past the house looked like a bloody museum so you know Yeah, no, I was. I mean, half joking. For I haven't actually been on the verge of tears while watching Premier League years ninety four, ninety five. <laughs> but if I'm in the wrong sort of mood and that sort of pops up on Sky, I just have to turn away from it immediately because I just get so ludicrously nostalgic about the past, and it really sort of um, generally affects me. Um, Got to say though, Andrew, the nineties were amazing, though, weren't they? I mean, they were just they were the best decade ever, weren't they? They yeah, just were. You, I mean, that's just a statement of fact, isn't it? Really, really missed out, Laura. Um, was, I mean, was, I was alive. Just no, I'm conscious of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, no, the the nineties were good. You know, Spice Girls. Is that right? Yeah. Is that the best thing you remember about the nineties? I don't know. It's it, the Spice Girls is the first thing that comes to mind. Honestly, the late nineties for me seem to be. You know, it's it's like Blair and Brown, the Spice Girls. Arsenal being quite good at football and um, yeah, France 98 and a combination of those things seems to have just sort of overshadowed everything else that happened in that decade. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's tier five Friday. Just, and, just to uh, clarify, yeah, not a Spice Girls fan or anything that just, you know, they were just a big cultural yeah. entity right then. There's yeah. nothing wrong with being a Spice Girls fan. I like, I, like some of the, I was watching a documentary on them um, sort of late Saturday night quite recently you sort of forget how what's mad about the Spice I don't know how we've had this conversation about Spice Girls but how how their career was like really short like they burst on the scene in 96 and it was all done by the summer of 98 they were done in two years I mean it was just like you sort of look back you think oh they left a real legacy they were they spent less time in the in the charts than sort of you know some players have on loan at clubs it's um it's sort of amazing presume you're a Spice Girls fan Laura even though you're only a little baby when they were rocking the charts obviously uh what, what gave me away um <laughs> yeah I had um I had plenty of pictures of uh Jerry so Ginger Spice yeah. everywhere unfortunately I also took a picture of her to the hairdresser once when I was about well far too old to be um looking at pictures of her as a style icon and I had highlights (laughs) put in my hair um obviously I've got ginger hair and blonde highlights and ginger hair is not a good look um but my mum took me and I had to sit there I think for about six or seven hours in the salon uh waiting for the bleach to actually bleach my hair um but I wanted to look like Jerry so you know that was the end of it um and yes I was I was such a big fan that I made significant investments to look like one of the Spice Girls basically Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh. Yeah. No, that's absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely fair enough. Um, I've got to say, I think goodbye. Is that Spice Girls' best mm-hmm. song, isn't it? I think we all agree on that, don't we? Yeah. Laura's that's the one where I, I have to turn it off because it makes me so emotional. Oh god, like, and- that's I can't. I can't do it. It's, I can't it's- handle it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah can't. Let's stop reminiscing because we're all going to start crying. I think that's 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 what this conclusion I've come to. We all love the past more than the future, so let's move <laughs> away. Uh, and in a way, let's talk about the present day and let's talk about Arsenal. Um, sort of. Um, so. This isn't a traditional fans episode in regards to chatting about Arsenal. Uh, that's already kind of been done on this podcast. I did it with the brilliant Tim Stillman back in Series 1. Instead, uh, it's going to be focused around Arsenal fans on Twitter and football fans on Twitter generally. And I'm, and I'm narrowing it down to Twitter because that is the only social media platform I use. But obviously, Tim, uh, sorry, not Tim, Andrew and Laura, do feel free to talk about Facebook and Instagram if you want. I'm not on those, so I can't really comment. But um yeah, I think like most people, I have a, I have a love relationship, love-hate relationship, I should say, with Twitter. I can't stand it, but equally can't stay off it. Um, and I think one of my many issues with it is how it's kind of changed and distorted discussion around football and made me question and kind of feel bad almost about how I discuss football there and portray my knowledge and love for the sport. Um, on the latter point, I don't tweet that much about football. And when I do, it's generally not about tactics or transfers or uh, statistical data, basic stuff that would make me sound quite smart and knowledgeable and tuned in when it comes to football, even though I consider myself very much to be so. Um, But I don't, uh, I don't tweet about football in those terms, mainly because a, I haven't got the time. B, I can't be bothered to get into arguments with people on Twitter, which is generally how it goes when you tweet about football. And C, I generally find serious football chat on Twitter a bit boring, to be honest. Uh, so I tend to be quite lighthearted about football on Twitter, which I'm fine with. Uh, equally, I'm where it probably doesn't project me as someone who takes a sport seriously, even though I do. Uh, and probably then also means me not getting opportunities that someone sort of in my professional position could and perhaps should get. But I'm not going to change. 
how I do football Twitter for the reasons I've just mentioned. Uh, and genuinely, because I think the best people on Twitter, the best football fans on Twitter are the funny ones, which brings me on to Laura and Andrew, <laughs> who are two absolute Twitter heroes of mine for the simple fact that they regularly make me laugh on Twitter, um, especially Laura when she's slagging off Mo Salah. Um, and they are also part of, for me, what is the best group of football fans on Twitter right now, and that is Arsenal fans. Very much the Belgian national football team of football tweeters. And that's a golden generation that's come about through accident rather than design. And are really playing some incredible stuff right now, it has to be said. Um, so we'll come on to football discourse on Twitter more broadly uh, later. Before we do, I do want to focus on Arsenal Twitter. So it's not actually a thing. There are millions of Arsenal fans on Twitter. They're all different, some good, some definitely bad. So when I talk about Arsenal Twitter, I just talk about the people I specifically follow. So that's Laura, Andrew, and also people like Tim Stillman, Andrew Mangan, who's asked, you know, runs the fantastic Ars blog site and podcast. James McNicholas, obviously a Gunner blog. Chris Godfrey, Boyd Hilton, Andy Haar, uh, and also the brilliant Simpsons Arsenal account as well. People who are smart, interestingly, but most importantly, do a great line in humour and gallus humour specifically, which um, I'm, I suggest Arsenal fans have needed a lot of in recent years. Um, so come to you first, Laura, then. Simple question. What does Arsenal Twitter look and mean to you? Oh, gosh. Um, how long you got? I mean, the way that I see it is very similar to you, Satch, in that um, I do not enjoy uh, serious chat about football on Twitter um, for a slightly different reason from you, I think. If I'm totally honest... I do not understand the game at a level where I am happy to talk about things like tactics, formations. I'm very happy to hold my hands up and say, I, I don't understand the game like that and I don't watch it like that. Um, so, you know, when the team lineup comes out, if I'm totally honest, I'm like, I have no idea what formation that is. <laughs> I, I, I mean, Arteta likes to tinker with it, which doesn't help my learning at all. But yeah. I have really a very, very poor understanding of how the game works. Um and to a certain extent, I feel like a bit of a fraud, actually, when people, you know, very kindly ask me on podcasts to talk about Arsenal. I, I cannot talk about the game like that. I've never played the game. Um, I don't absorb any kind of tactical discussion. And I can't work out whether it's because it's not. I'm sure it's fascinating. I've always enjoyed Twitter and talking about football on Twitter in the kind of very lighthearted way that you've just described. So if you say to me, Arsenal Twitter the first thing that comes to me is, is, as you say, the likes of the Simpsons Arsenal um, account, badly drawn Arsenal. It's it's a coping mechanism for <laughs> what happens on the pitch because, I, I, as I said, I don't understand the game like that. And I have a lot of respect for people like Tim Stillman who can translate um, tactics and selections and players. Um, but I don't see that side of Twitter at all, if I'm totally honest. I, I scroll through discussions about formations and things. I'm not interested in it. So that's a very long-winded answer of saying I'm here for the fun. And for mm. me, that's what that's the first thing I see about Arsenal Twitter. Now, I'm sure we'll come on to it at a later stage. But that is certainly, I don't think, what um, the outside world would see from Arsenal Twitter, basically. I, I see it's lighthearted because that's how I operate and that's how I curate my feed if you will mm. to be light-hearted jokey self-deprecating um and I try and filter out the rest of it if I'm totally honest yeah. 
That's interesting. I mean, Andrew, same question to you. But what I mean, I'd also follow that up by saying I think there's a lot of blaggers on Twitter. And I, I mean, blaggers is a bit harsh. I, I don't. I, I I do not consider myself a football expert at all. I'll do a little bit of tactics chat, just obvious things I might spot while watching a game. But a lot of the people, Andrew, who are who go in depth on tactics and team selections and squad building on Twitter, they're just like like me, you, like Laura, they're just they're mere mortals as well, aren't they? We're not talking about sort of coaches and 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 people who've got in depth knowledge of football. We're all sort of having a go at it. I think I'm just different to Laura. It's not that I I feel kind of uh, inferior to those people. I just find a lot of that quite boring. And I mean, you do you do I would say more than me and Laura certainly, but you also tend to lean towards the kind of funny side about it as well. But so, what are your sort of reasons for that sort of decision yeah it's, it's weird I think my sort of relationship with the platform has sort of evolved over the last 10-12 years like when I first started using it I guess I was coming to it from a journalistic background I was sort of trying to promote articles and trying to be a little bit more earnest and make my way in the world and make contacts and all the rest mm. of it and you know over the years my work my line of work has changed you know the types of people I, I, I follow uh, their lives have changed and I <laughs> now just use it as a kind of place where I chuck a few grenades whenever Arsenal are doing badly and then I just run away. I, like you, I, I more than anything, I don't have the time to get drawn into really yeah. long, drawn-out conversations. And, and, I, and I quite often find myself feeling quite guilty when I'll go on there, leave a comment, walk away from Twitter for an hour, come back, see loads of people have replied in some shape or form. And then I think, shit, do I have to reply to all these people? Like, am I a bad person if I can't be asked? Do I just do the lazy thing and like their thing, even though, you know, it's it's sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's become a, a very noisy, noisy place. And, you know, I don't want to get nostalgic for the early days of Twitter, but seeing as we're talking about nostalgia, <laughs> at the beginning, it really felt like a kind of a small pub, and some of the cool kids had got invited and you felt kind of privileged to be there. And you sort of, it, it felt like a place where you could actually have a conversation one-on-one with, with people. And at the time, I guess I didn't have really any followers either. And some of the problem is, and it sounds really sort of wanky, but you get a bigger following. It becomes much harder to use the platform in the way that people with smaller followings use it, which is literally to have one-on-one conversations with people and, yeah. and build relationships like that. You just, you can't do that once you, you've, you've passed about 5,000 followers or anything. But I think it's still a fun place. It's an alarming place. Like you kind of, every day I go on there and I, my eyes are just sort of like wide open about what people are moaning about. Every time I message or, you know, send a, send a tweet out, no matter how mundane, there'll always be one person who's found a way to take it sort of slightly the wrong way and you've rubbed them up and you're kind of like like and they feel the need to kind of tell you that they're rubbed up the wrong way and you're kind of like mate just let it slide and I think we're (laughs) kind of we're living in a world now where everybody feels like they kind of have to pipe up a little bit about this stuff but you know I I still kind of I'm addicted to it though I mean I still love being on there uh, for sure yeah no I'm I'm exactly the same I think it's obviously honestly borderline addiction because I've actually come off twice I came off for six months sort of back end of 2018 into 2019 and I couldn't have been happier to be honest and I still ended up coming back on to it and then I took a month off this summer again absolutely delighted loved being off it came back again because I just sort of felt like I had to be involved in it and I was sort of getting a bit twitchy for it but um, just sticking with you Andrew I mean I would say your peak time on Twitter the time I enjoyed you the most was that sort of horrendous uh, autumn winter spell that Arsenal had last year when you, I think you lost to Leicester Wolves Villa and Burnley at home and um, you and Chris Godfrey Chris I should say is a colleague of mine at the Guardian um, you were you were laying some fantastic 
shit against Willian. I mean, you are, both of you, it was almost like you were tag teaming him, just, just absolutely ripping the piss off him. And I was kind of just more broadly on that. When Arsenal were going through that terrible run, I think you lost four home league games in a row during sort of October, November. Yeah. Um, all right, Satch, we all remember it, all right? Yeah, you, don't but, to, you don't need to give us the stats, we oh, all remember it. Well, it's it was when you, it was when you guys were all at your best. And I will come back to you on this, Laura, because um, there's obviously something you're very well known for doing on Twitter and you were, you were at your peak during that period. But just sticking to you, Andrew, originally is... Um, so you and Chris and Laura and others, you got Arsenal fans got involved in some fantastic kind of gallus humour, sort of laying to the players in a really funny way, William being the, the obvious one. And I'm kind of curious to how much that's kind of a coping mechanism when things are going that badly. Is it like, let's go on Twitter and let's be funny because it makes... And that's why I think Arsenal fans are really good in a way that Liverpool fans are don't. I mean, I, there's a lot of Liverpool fans on Twitter. I love they're part of my sort of community, but they do take the club and I'm probably as guilty. This is anyone of a little bit seriously, but during that sort of period, you guys, that's when you're at your funniest, I thought. And obviously the Willian stuff really stood out. Yeah. So, I mean, is it a bit of a coping mechanism when things are going that badly? I think it's 100% a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I, I still get quite emotionally affected by bad Arsenal results, even though I'm a 38 year old man and I should know better, but I can't help it. You know, my life's too intertwined with the football club now and it has been for too long. And um, without wanting to sound too Nick Hornby, you know, sometimes you can't tell when the differences between life's being shit or Arsenal are shit, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, it is exactly that. It's quite often if I'm on Twitter and I'm sending something like that, it's because I've got no one around me to actually make the same gag to. So you just turn to the next available space. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is, look, I, I think if there is one good thing that, you know, Twitter does more than anything is that it does show you that other people do feel like, you know, the same as you in certain uh-huh. situations. And the gallows humor thing, I mean, I just find it very tiring being really angry about a football team all the time. So you kind of have to just step away and just sort of go, look, ultimately none of this really matters. And then you just try and laugh your way through it. And it's fine. It's fine. There's absolutely, it's absolutely fine, isn't it? I'm just going to be okay. <laughs> well, we'll come on to that later. Will it be okay? Um, Laura, back to you. Um, yeah, your, your kind of, your, your killer move on Twitter has been there. I think I have to describe, I'm, I'm going to call it a photo diary. I don't know if that's yeah. the right. I've not got a name for it, but yeah, that's about that Um, It's amazing. As I said, during that period, um, it became a work of art. It was absolutely exceptional. Uh, Do you want to do you want to explain what I'm talking about and how it sort of developed? Yeah, um, it started by accident. um, And I've got to credit, there's another account who does a brilliant version of it, which is a a kind of meme or a gif after each one. Um, So she had the, the idea first. But I basically uploaded a picture of me and this was the first day of last season um where we beat Fulham really easily we played really well um I had the new shirt and I basically posted a big smiley picture of myself having watched that game um and then after each game I've just started taking a picture of myself trying to reflect on the performance which obviously in that little period that you mentioned uh last season was loss after loss after loss um and I think to to Andrew's point around it's a coping mechanism and also it's it's a comfort because everyone feels the same like yeah. when you're an Arsenal fan it's just it is genuinely quite um comforting and I also take it very seriously I, I, I should know better and I do try and distance myself from it but it does hurt and every now and then you kind of have to go okay I need to step away from this because it really is upsetting me that Arsenal are so far away from where I think they should be so the kind of gallows humor the you know endless stream of pictures of me looking 
combination of aghast, disappointed, expectant. To be honest, I'm, I'm running out of facial expressions for how Arsenal are making me feel at the moment because it really is... It, it's hard to convey um, the disappointment, but without being surprised, it's more just like, oh, you know, we yeah. really are... Like, are we, again, like, okay, yeah. yeah, we've seen this before and I'm not surprised, but I'm still as disappointed. Um, and I think that's that's why people have enjoyed it because it... As I said, it's a comfort to know that there are other people experiencing the same emotions as you and are as invested in it as you. And that's why I think, yeah, people find it funny. Yeah, just uh, so it's it's a picture. It's like literally a selfie after every league yeah. game. I don't think you do it for cup games, do you, or European no, games? Yeah. Just just the, just the big games, and it's you know regardless of whether I've got you know I'm in my pajamas, I'm at the yeah. game, um, however it feels uh, after that result. And there were some shockers last year, so yeah. you know we've got to got to get creative, basically. I think alongside captions like Hello Darkness, my old friend, and you just looking sort of wistfully into the distance in your what it's sort of um, it became it was your trademark outfit, that like, sort of that like grey um, dressing gown thing, wasn't it? Just yeah, every it's, single it's time gown. you're in that grey yeah. dressing gown, yeah. This was obviously when we were playing behind closed doors, obviously watching all the games at yeah. home in the dressing gown with a hood. Well, that's something else I was going to ask you. I mean, you, you, you've got season ticket at the Emirates as well. Is, has going back to the ground made that? You're still doing it. I think I've seen a few from the ground, but has that made it more difficult? Has it added to it? Have people spotted you doing it and go, oh, you're that girl from Twitter who does the, the selfies? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it's, it's harder to do because I'm too embarrassed to do it at the ground. Like, I'm not going to stand there to taking a selfie with a yeah. funny facial expression. <laughs> so I actually think one of them I did in the toilet. Um, so it, it's a little bit more difficult, but, you know, the, the one, the most recent one at the North London Derby, I did just in the moment um, yeah. because it was great. Yeah, and what's the reaction? It's been good, isn't it? It's been generally quite positive. I think a lot of people take comfort from from it as well. Yeah, sometimes I get you know if, if, if I've not done it quick enough, I get people messaging me asking me where, where it is. So yeah. I'm like, all right, hang on a second, let me just get my face <laughs> ready and then <laughs> I'll get it for you. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm yeah, impressed. I've spent six months trying to decide whether or not I should change my Twitter profile picture, and I can't come to a decision. So the fact that you're uploading a picture of your face every day is really impressive for me. <laughs> I was like, every day, not every is day, it? Not yeah, every day, every day, every day, yeah, yeah. every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just Andrew, just kind of want to come to that point that Laura made about the um about the sort of the football tactics stuff and not feel sort of comfortable about doing it. I mean, as I said, you you do a bit of it. I've definitely seen that, but. I think you're like me. You said it as well. You don't do the big threads kind of breaking down at a performance and stuff like that. And, um, but as I said, I, I genuinely kind of feel it. I, I wrestle with it. I, I sometimes feel, should I do, I'm a sports journalist. I'm a football journalist. I should be doing threads on why Liverpool's midfield is malfunctioning or, or etc. or whatever. Um, have you sort of woken up on a Monday and gone, I'll just bang out, I'll bang out a quick thread about how Arsenal could improve their, uh, the way they attack teams in the final third or something. And, I just wanted that sort of curious thing about how much you wrestle with it, because because you are you know you do stuff for Ask Blog as well. You are a football journalist, and I feel if I I feel people I genuinely feel people don't take me seriously on Twitter as a football journalist. But as a football fan, I feel very comfortable. I think I come across as a as a fan, but as a journalist, perhaps not because I don't do those threads. I don't do the tactics talk. Do you have that sort of insecurity as well, given your profession? Yeah, I mean, I I think. I think what's happened is that over the course of the last few years, there's just been this real niche sort of specialism that's kind of developed where people just seem to know intense details that other people do not know about and their confidence grows as a consequence and they feel more comfortable about kind of going out into the public and expressing an opinion. And uh, I, I for a long time haven't had a clue how to fix Arsenal. So I've not attempted to try and talk about it in public. Um, 
I do feel like football's kind of going in a in a weird direction at the moment. You know, some people have access to stats and understand them better than others. And those people are obviously using Twitter and other platforms to kind of go down that angle and 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 talk about the game in a completely different way that just did not exist 15, 20 years ago when, you know, I was sort of just getting to know it properly as a as a as a supporter and a younger boy. And I feel like yeah, there's almost like a two-tier sort of understanding of the game taking place. I personally, I go to the matches as a fan. I don't go, I very rarely go as a journalist and I experience them as a fan. And my reactions are, you know, on social media are, are my fan reactions. I, I I think there's definitely a place for people to go out there and express, you know, what where they think things are, are going wrong. It's almost like problem solving. I guess maybe you have to be the type of personality who enjoys that kind of thing. The type of interaction as well. I mean, they're obviously going out there and sparking a debate. Like I said earlier, I just, I don't actually have the time to sit on Twitter and, and go mm. through the process of kind of actually going, well, have I been, am I right here? Am I wrong? What's that person saying? Are they right? I, I, I love that it's there. I love that if I want to listen to it from someone else or read about it from someone else, I can. But yeah, I, I think maybe like Laura, actually in a weird way, I've kind of, I've actually lost a little bit of confidence to talk about it recently. And I say that as someone who literally writes about Arsenal every single day, but what I tend to do is just stick to the, the news side of things. Mm. So I'm not really kind of getting involved in tactics. I'll sometimes sort of, I kind of like the, the away from the pitch stuff as well. You know, I like taking a look at the financial stuff. I like the transfer stuff. Who doesn't? I mean, it's fun. It's interesting, but again, I don't sit there going with the transfer stuff. Oh my God, these are the 15 people that Arsenal must sign in the next six months. Otherwise, you know, the world's going to fall apart and, you know, all this type of stuff. I, I'm more like, oh, he sounds like he's all right. Maybe I'll watch a YouTube video. Um, or I'm more likely to just go call it out and say, well, that's obviously absolute bollocks. And yeah. there's a lot of that floating around on Twitter, just people who are positing individuals who should or shouldn't be playing for the club. And you go, well, mate, it's just not, it's just not that simple. But the problem is you don't really know who the other people are on the other side of the yeah. top, right? You don't know if they're a 15 year old kid who are just sort of, you know, probably would have been what I'd done when I was 15. You know, they're just throwing things out there not really thinking about them. And for that reason, I kind of try and back away and not sort of start pointing fingers too much. Yeah, that's fair enough. I should. I just want to stress, I have zero issue with people who do the serious football chat on Twitter. I mean, each their own, you know, and undeniably adds to the richness of a football discourse. And I do, find, I genuinely find a lot of interest. I think Tim Stillman's brilliant, for instance, on, on Arsenal on Twitter. I always find his stuff really good and I like reading it. But yeah, it's just not for me uh, for the reasons outlined above. And uh, yeah, j- yeah, just find it very, as, as Andrew's just said, very time consuming. And it just always leads to arguments that I can't be bothered personally dealing with. Um, back to you, Laura, just to talk about Arsenal Twitter a little bit more. As I said, it's not actually a thing, but I love it. I think you guys, uh, there's a collection of you who are absolutely outstanding at the moment. Um, what are the sort of, um, but to be a bit negative about it, what are the sort of, the sort of headaches with it as well. What are the big battles that have been fought on it? I, my sense is the, was that the, uh, the Urzel Wars got particularly bloody? I mean, the, the, the Urzel Wars, I think, speaks to exactly what Andrew just said around people. There is no nuance on Twitter. There is no, there is no debate. You are wrong um, and you're, therefore you're an idiot or you are right and then you are a legend. There is literally no middle ground or any place to go. Actually, we disagree, but that's fine. Um I think one of the things on with Arsenal Twitter, and this is not, um, I think, specific to Arsenal, but having been a fan on Twitter, but also having done some work with Arsenal, 
when they post and, and kind of experiencing that what, what they see when they post things on Twitter, um, people are so emboldened to write abuse under official kind of club announcements. And I think even though you know it's there just to see it, particularly if, if I'm in a video, so for example, during the um, lockdown, I was part of a series where we sort of recorded ourselves uh, watching the games. Oh, so yeah, that, I remember that. that. Kind yeah. Of, you know, it's like a sort of goggle boxing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and like yeah. it was meant to be lighthearted. It was from the Arsenal official channel, lighthearted. But the amount of abuse underneath it mm-hmm. um, from people who... It's just, I don't know why there is no shame anymore in... You just wouldn't say that in public. You, you just wouldn't. And yet you feel so emboldened to write it under you know, an official club post. Um, and, you know, I, I know that they have trouble with posting anything during the transfer window because all of the comments, thousands and thousands of comments are sign this player, where's mm-hmm. this player? Um, which I think is quite, I don't know whether that's that's a specific Arsenal thing. I think you see it from from um, lots of other clubs, but I, I suspect it's something to do with the kind of, dissatisfaction that Arsenal fans have with where we are at the moment and the lack of spending and 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 um but the the, the abuse side of it and I'm sure we, we can talk about it later but the the level of hyperbole around reacting to games it, it, it is a game and I think mm. lots of people forget that the strength of language that is used in describing the players in describing how we feel about you know it's a disgrace and I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well but it's it's not a game of life or death, and the language that people use is so strong and getting worse. Um, as I said, th- there's no grey ground on Twitter really anymore. There's mm. no room for disagreement. It's always just you're right, you're wrong. That's that's it basically. So it's a very extreme um, mm-hmm. environment to be in, which is partly why I kind of lean towards the light-hearted side of it. It's not it doesn't mean I'm immune to it, but that's that's essentially why I position myself as I do. And that's really interesting. So the, the people who, who run Arsenal's official social media accounts, I mean, have you spoken to them directly? Do they personally get quite upset about it? Their name's not on it, obviously. It's, it's the Arsenal name. But are they? do they feel quite affected by the abuse they get? Yeah, I mean, it, it affected things like, so we filmed ourselves for every game, um, mm. but we only posted when we won, which, you know, you, you can understand why. Um, but it was just in the knowledge that if we posted footage of us watching a game where we'd lost the level of kind of abuse underneath the post would be, would be much higher. And you can kind of hear that in the conversations that they have, you know, you have, you have to consider what content you're putting out, particularly if it's player specific, you know, people feel very strongly this way or the other about players. And I think the Ozil situation was, was the best example of that, just a completely polarized club and everyone's mm. got a strong opinion of it. Yeah. I mean, so Andrew, you do, you work for Ask Blog. You, you appear on the Ask Cast with Andrew from time to time as well. I mean, what's is your abuse coming your way through that? I mean, that's become such an influential site and podcast as well. Are you, are you, your association with that, does that then lead to you getting abuse as well through social media? I'd, I'd say by and large, like over the last 10 years, which is as long I've been working with Andrew on Ask Blog stuff is, mm. is that I've been pretty lucky. Um, I can see it happening elsewhere. And I think part of the policy of our site is to basically not go involving yourself in arguments with people who make content elsewhere. I mean, there are plenty of people, I mean, Arsenal fan TV, for example, is a very polarizing sort of sort of discussion point, I guess, for, for Arsenal fans. And personally, I, you know, having met Robbie, I think he's a nice bloke. I, 
I really respect what he's done from a business perspective. I think some of the content they put out is really good. I think some of the content they put out, not for me. Do I need to have a massive opinion on it? Does it need to become like this this big thing that is, you know, you know, if I if I talk to my dad about Arsenal fan TV, he wouldn't have a clue. He's an Arsenal season ticket holder. You get this kind of idea on Twitter that everybody seems to be involved in the same debate, and then you kind of magnify it and assume that everyone outside, mm. you know, who's not on social media is also involved in it. I'd say by and large, I've been very, very lucky. But there have been occasions, you know, um, years ago, you know, Andrew did some stuff. Andrew Mangan uh, did some stuff with the club and uh, our blog as, as an entity was kind of related to the club on, you know, we did, we, did a, we did a book which ended up in one of the member packs at one point. And then suddenly what you get is a portion of people who suddenly start being conspiracy theorists about the whole thing. Oh, you're in the pocket of the club you know you're you know you're one of gazidas's tea boys this kind of nonsense and you sit back and you you call people out on it and then you realize that they're not going to change their mind they've just decided that this is what they think and actually you go well fuck it like if that's what you want to think that's what you want to think i can't do anything about it i'm probably never going to meet you it's sad that it happens i'm not going to try and lose too much sleep over it but you know it's there in the background and you kind of you know that that person is out there probably spreading that Mm. we see stuff like that all the time but you know when when you get to the level of following that andrew and the site has over the last you know two decades now for him um it's just it just comes with a job i guess yeah i was going to actually talk about arsenal fan tv or aftv as it's called now i mean laura i'll come to you uh, ask your take on it as well i mean i yeah me and tim spoke about this on the episode of fans he was on as well i i i think aftv actually personally gets uh, a harsh rep. I, I mean, I, look, I'm not going to lie. When I first started watching it a few years ago, sort of the end of the Venga era, I was watching it to sort of laugh at them a bit because I'd because I'd seen the clips on you know on social media on on Twitter and elsewhere, uh, you know, sort of DT and troops ranting into a microphone. And then I watched it, and actually, yeah, they, there is a lot of ranting going on. It is a bit comical, but actually, they actually have, have some good discussions. And they, for me, they just sound like actual football fans. I think the one thing I think a lot of Arsenal fans get upset about AFTV. Uh, one of the reasons they get upset about it is because they think outsiders think that's how we look at we think they're all Arsenal fans and we and I just speak for myself I absolutely don't you know the fact that I follow a variety of people on Twitter for instance of Arsenal fans I know there are different Arsenal fans and it's a far more sort of nuanced uh, like all football support bases far more nuanced than just what you see on AFTV but so what's your take I mean sounds like Andrew you're, you're relatively sort of indifferent to it you don't get too het up by AFTV are you one of the people Laura who does um you're not too bothered do you actually like me think it's not as bad as a lot of people think I mean, I think I'm probably the latter. Yeah, I have to say I really respect it as a business model. I think it tapped into a need and an increasing need, actually, that um, the the content that comes out of the clubs and Sky and the broadcasters is so sterile and predictable. And they've tapped into this need that we all have for something a bit more interesting, something a bit more a bit less media trained and specific. So I, I really respect what they've tapped into in terms of like a kind of customer need. Um, but I agree, I, if you don't like it, it's, it's just not that big uh, of a thing that it needs mm. to take any kind of part of your Arsenal fandom. Like, as you said, I think the reason people don't like it, uh, one of the reasons is they think that other clubs and other people um, think that that's how all Arsenal fans yeah, yeah. Um, behave. But but, but other fan other fan groups are, are more concerned with their own fan problems like every every club supporter has some sort of 
I mean, I'm sure anyway, some sort of like conflict within it. And therefore to get obsessed about a club that's not yours, I think is massively exaggerating their influence. Um, I think the, the kind of current situation where we've got, you know, people abusing them when they go to games is is completely unacceptable. Um, You know, you you see a lot of the presenters, particularly Pippa, um, you know, really saying I I was abused openly um, at away games. And I think, that's just completely unacceptable Mm. if you don't like them you just don't have to watch it it's very very easy for it not to be a part of your life just you have to follow them you know unfollow people that like them and and it appears on your feed just remove it and it's not that big a deal if you know if you don't like something on tv you don't sit there watching it screaming at it and saying how much i hate it you just change the channel and i think the same is with arsenal fan tv If, if, if you really don't like it it really can be not part of your kind of how you interact with Arsenal um it's, it just doesn't bother me some of it I think is quite good some of it I don't like it's just not that big a deal yeah no I agree with that um and speaking of Arsenal content um should we talk about the Tuesday club quickly we're both massive fans um I'd love how you listen to it uh with your well now your fiance um do you want to sort of explain how, do you want to explain what the Tuesday club is and explain your unique way of listening to it? I don't know if you still do it but I presume you do Sorry, was that a question for me? I'm yeah, sorry, that was you. Yeah, no, sorry. I, I, I haven't got a fiance, so <laughs> <laughs> that's totally for you. I was like, oh my gosh, okay. Um, so we um, we tend to kind of meet uh, on a Tuesday when it comes out and, and listen to it um, if we're working from home together, which is quite sweet. Um, Alan Davies actually sits a couple of rows in front of me at the Emirates um, when he goes. Um, I've never quite had the courage. Pl- to you know go and ask for a photo but I will one day um but yeah we do basically little listening parties to the Tuesday club which is maybe a bit sad but oh it's really sweet (laughs) it's really sweet now yeah and just say the Tuesday club so it's a podcast uh which comes out on Tuesday uh hosted by Alan Davis obviously the fantastic comedian on QI and things like that and um yeah I just love it I just again for me it's the sound of football fans it's it's really funny and and isn't a spec well they take pride in not being analytical and very serious and it's very amusing and light-hearted which is obviously my bag completely just to wrap up the twitter chat then uh, and andrew i'll come to you on this more broadly how do you feel twitter has affected football discourse definitely feels and uh, you made reference to this earlier that it's that's made it more toxic and i personally think that's because all the banter chats we used to have in private are now happening in public on social media leading to arguments within and across fan bases, which in turn is making people even more tribalistic and entrenched, which in turn is leading to more nasty discourse. Um, I think we've seen that especially clearly at the moment with the, with the chat around Newcastle's recent takeover. Actual Newcastle fans refusing to condemn Saudi, Arabia, Saudi Arabia's human rights record, which is partly down to the inherently tribalistic nature of football fans, but also, I believe, down to Newcastle fans seeing other football fans criticise their club on social media they then react by standing up for their club's owners, even though they know they're scumbags, because I guess that's what you do when your tribe is being attacked from the outside. It's a bit of a defence mechanism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think the moment you start applying football tribalism to discourse outside of football, and obviously we know now that football is so kind of interconnected with globalisation and global politics because of the nature of all the owners, yeah, naturally, debate becomes very black and white. And it just, it simplifies everything to the point where it becomes a bit sort of moronic in some cases. Um, It's not something, obviously, it's not something you want to see. But I think now, you know, 
we've gone too far. Like we've gone too far. Like the, the, the cat's out the bag and that's just kind of the way it is. It's going to be very hard to kind of rein that in again. I mean, yeah, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think, I think Newcastle's owners are going to have to get to grips with that particular situation quite quickly, because I think we've already seen that, you know, that, that they're begging people not to turn up wearing kind of traditional Arab yeah, dress like, and stuff. Like, I mean, like a couple of days, absolutely. It shows you it, where we are, doesn't it? It really, it really does. I mean, look, I, I think also there's a there's a certain type of personality that chooses to to go into arguments like this and and makes it a kind of matter of life and death for them in the moment and you know it's we're all different some of us are able to back away from that I think you know ultimately it will come down to to education in the long term you know I don't think kids are, are taught about how to use social media or how to be you know analytical necessarily mm. how to kind of like think about things from a more um, standoffish perspective and look at the, the broader picture. I think all of this stuff will kind of play into the, you know, the curriculums in, in, in future years and generations and stuff. But, you know, for, for, for people like you and me who kind of, well, maybe what, like, you know, 18, 19, 20 as, as social media started kicking off, you know, you were just thrown into this world and we've seen it kind of evolve and, 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 and grown with it and seen it start in one place and end up in another. I think anybody just jumping into the pool now as a youngster, I think you kind of need a set of guidelines almost. Um, it's a bit mad. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, given how fundamental social media is to our lives and given how there is undoubtedly a need to lower the temperature of, of discourse on social media, not just with football, but I, I would say politics especially. I mean, we had the conservative mp was you know tragically murdered um last week as well i mean that's really interesting do you actually think we've got to a point where social media use needs to be taught on on the national curriculum taught at schools to actually help people understand how it's used and how how the nasty things they can they say and they can say can have a, a broader and wider and really damaging effect yeah i mean I, I think those conversations are being had around specific topics you know mm. we see big pushes around the you know anti-racism and um obviously the black lives matter movement has yeah. kind of really kind of accelerated a lot of those conversations particularly in, around younger people but i think just in general the, the manner in which social media is used the manner in which it can be used to manipulate views i think people people just as particularly young people just need to be more aware that everything that they say and everything that they uh, read on the internet can be kind of not necessarily what it seems. And um, yeah, I, I, it's, it, you know, I, I don't have kids. I, I haven't kind of got to the point where I'm worrying about whether or not they're going to be sitting on devices or social media all day, but you do kind of stand back from it all and go, Oh my God, you know, if I, if I did have kids, would I want them to be on there? How would I want them to be using it? Would I want them to be using it in the way that I use it? And I, you know, sometimes I think if I had kids, maybe I wouldn't necessarily say some of the sort of slightly more out there things that I do say. And I, I feel like maybe that will come. I'll, I'll kind of learn to hold back a little bit more. I don't know whether you feel the same way. I mean, I know that you do have kids obviously. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've got a 10 year old daughter, and I'm absolutely terrified of her going on social media um, just because of how nasty it is, but also as a girl as well as a female, that you know, mm. just the, the you know, the stuff that could could well come away. So yeah, it's a big concern. I, I think your idea of it, you know, or the general idea of it being something that's taught in schools more broadly, I think is a is a really good idea. I think we have got to that stage, it's so fundamental to our lives that yeah, maybe we need to actually sit down in classrooms and talk about this, talk about how it's used and as I said, the effect it can have on people. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the one thing, the one major issue with that is the technology and the platforms move so quickly, and you know, changing things like national curriculums and and having those debates, it can be quite a slow process. I, you know, I see that all the time, and you know, it's the this has been something that the law has had a problem with as well, right? You know, the law's not really been able to keep up with social media, and I think there's been a lot of knock-on effects of that in our you know general society as well. So, yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's just it, it's been sprung on humanity you know, like a click of a finger and we're still getting to grips with it, I think. Yeah. Have you ever thought about coming off Twitter? I haven't, I haven't really thought about coming off it. No. I mean, I I sometimes have concerns about how much time I spend on there, but not so much about my ability to dissect the information that's coming at me. Um, I feel kind of lucky in that respect because I know it can become quite overwhelming. I think if there was, you know, a particular trigger, like some particular event that actually kind of, you know affected me emotionally i think i would seriously consider stepping back from it for sure um but you know for the time being i'm okay i feel like i can cope with it um you know it's there if i want it i keep it in my pocket if i don't want to look at it you know i've got a level of self-restraint which i've I've sort of taught myself i think is i mean i think if you work in journalism in particular because twitter in particular is such a kind of news feed um you do feel kind of like it's an extension of work really like if you're not yeah. paying attention to it there's a chance you might miss something and if you miss something that might have a knock-on effect on whatever it is you're reporting on and you know in that respect i find i'm kind of like it's it's just there it's like an ex- mm. you know it's like another limb almost now um but yeah i i i, I think if i if i wasn't involved in journalism i probably would maybe i mean i certainly feel that way about facebook which was easier to step back from you know you just sort of leave it there and let it do its thing but i i don't really check it anymore but with twitter because it's like news and 24 7 and yeah it's sort of yeah it's sort of an addiction i guess yeah no that's a good point that's one of the reasons well on both occasions i actually came back to back to it because it is so key to my job it's really hard to be a journalist especially as an editor trying to keep track of what stories are sort of trending and doing well and getting a lot of, uh, a lot of feedback and, and stuff mm. to, to not be on Twitter and, and, and not have that sort of temperature gauge of, you know, what, what's making the news. It, it's really difficult. So yeah, as well as quite my kind of Twitter addiction, there's definitely um, there's the, the practicality of it as well. Yeah. And who knows, I might even start tweeting about tactics a bit more. Um, I do a bit to be, <laughs> I do a bit to be fair, but, but certainly not a huge amount or, or on a regular basis. Laura, let me bring you on that. Yeah, your thoughts on social media being taught as part of the curriculum. And also, as I touched on in regards to my daughter using social media, have you had any nasty Twitter experiences based purely on the fact you're a woman? Um, I mean, I'll start by the answering around the, the curriculum. I think it's absolutely essential that kids who are jumping on social media now are taught more about how um, they should recognise when social media isn't serving them in a positive way. So I, if, if I were teaching kids now, it wouldn't be around, you know, what you should and shouldn't do. I would be wanting to teach them the sort of emotional intelligence of recognising where to draw boundaries, because that is the mm-hmm. one good thing I think about social media is that you can and you should, when you recognise that something is not making you feel good, you are very much within your right to step away. You can yeah. block, you can mute, mm. you cannot reply. And so what I would be teaching kids is that you can curate your social media to what serves you correctly. But as a kid, I don't think you necessarily know what that is. Mm. So what I mean by that is 
I think as a kid, you might think it's quite exciting to get into an argument with a stranger over Twitter, right? You might, yeah. that might be something that would be quite thrilling for a 13 year old. Yeah. But what actually that's doing is, is that's never going to be a positive interaction, right? So that, and, and I've learned the hard way, that is not going to leave you, when you close down that app, that is not going to make you feel, make you feel better. So in terms of guidelines for kids on social media, if, if it was me teaching your daughter, it would be, look, social media can be so positive for you but you need to curate it in a way that is good for you. And that is going to be very different for each different person, right? So, and, and you should feel 100% empowered to step away from situations that don't make you feel good because that nobody's forcing you onto Twitter. Nobody's forcing mm. you onto, Insta onto Instagram. Nobody's making you click follow on people who you don't like. So you need to recognize what is a positive interaction and what is a negative one. And I think that's where kids need help because they're young and they haven't learned who they are and what makes them feel good in terms of interactions with essentially strangers on the internet with regards to being a woman I, I, I thought about this and I, I think I've had a handful of um, comments and you know insults that that relate specifically to my gender and I think that's probably because you know as, as we've talked about already I don't present myself as someone really knowledgeable about football mm. I really do present myself as someone taking things light-hearted therefore that is an acceptable I think you know a palatable way that a woman mm. can talk about football where I see the most abuse is on you know lots and lots of kind of like young content creators who are putting up match reviews you know player reviews presenting themselves as they should as someone who knows about football and the comments below that, particularly on YouTube, there's, it's, it's all the same thing as it's get back in the kitchen. You don't know what you're talking about, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say I've had it in any way as bad as, as, as what I see on, on Twitter. Um, I think there are slightly more subtle ways that I've experienced it. So, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, my boyfriend and I were part of a kind of thing for Arsenal where we recorded ourselves watching the games. And some of the comments from people that I think, are meant to be you know perfectly polite are oh you know did, did your boyfriend make you do this does he do, does he drag you to the games you know oh god that poor girl her boyfriend making her do it and oh you know yeah, and yeah, i'm yeah. like i'm i'm the i was the fan here basically <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the other way around um and i certainly see it when when, I, when i'm having discussions with you know if my boyfriend's there and we're with you know other males around in the pub all of their questions and conversation is directed at him it's very subtle but it's like hi yeah. why are you asking him what he thinks of his team selection like I, I'm a fan as well um but as I said I, I don't think I've experienced it quite as bad as what I've seen on Twitter and as I said I, th I think that's because of just how I position myself as someone taking it lightheartedly and, and for lots of men that's okay but oh when you step over the line and you start talking about it seriously mm. right now now you need to shut up basically yeah that's really interesting on the subtle sexism because um yeah completely unintentional but also mm. i can imagine it utterly infuriating as well um i mean on the on the other aspect of that as well is that is that partly then why you don't get into the football chat i know you said it's because you don't feel you've got that level of knowledge but is it also then to avoid the inevitable get back in the kitchen crap as well yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, as I said, I am very strict with myself on social media around removing myself instantly from situations and interactions which are negative. So if anyone writes anything abusive to me, they're blocked, they're muted mm -hmm. straight away. I, I never respond ever, ever, ever. If Even if someone DMs me something, I will never respond. Um, 
And I think, you know, I've learned the hard way. Um, a couple of years ago, I would certainly go back to that person and we'd, you know, have a bit of a back and forth. And then I realized that basically you're never going to feel good after that. Even if you think you've won an argument, it's never going to be a positive interaction. So I'm quite strict with myself in terms of blocking people, even people who, who I don't follow, but who appear on my feed, giving out abuse, blocked, muted. Um, and therefore that is why I think I've essentially protected myself somewhat from, from the type of abuse that other people get. Um, it, it's not a foolproof solution at all, but I think, uh, certainly over the past year or so you know if, if you do a tweet that gets 10,000 odd likes on it a humble brag there um, <laughs> you're like you are likely to get some some abuse so yeah. I think last year I riled up the Liverpool fans slightly and it was totally unintentional it was not meant to be about Liverpool um, I think it was probably during one of the lockdowns when uh, Dominic Cummings had, had you know done what he did and all the MPs came out in support of him and I basically wrote a tweet comparing that to when Luis Suarez had made. Oh God, you didn't comments. get that. That really does. Yeah. Oh no. You know, and <laughs> it was, it was meant as a joke. It genuinely is. Yeah. And, and lots of people took it as a joke, but there was still quite a lot of, you know, who's this bint, you know, lots of weird comparisons between Liverpool and the conservative party. And I was like, no, no, that's just, Oh God. <laughs> and I think that's another thing that, um, you know, kids should be taught is around the, massive lack of nuance on social media you you cannot capture within you know a tweet or an instagram post context nuance sarcasm the fact it was a joke Mm. um because you're going to upset someone who's taken it the wrong way um and that that for me is part and parcel of it but as i said my best way of protecting myself is never to respond ever 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 you just don't want to give them yeah. You don't want to give them any airtime because that's what they're after. And, and the best thing I see is when someone says me abuse, I don't respond. And they follow up with, well, are you going to respond? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't owe anyone anything on social media. And I think we would, be, we would do better to remember that. You don't owe anyone a response. Yeah, I wholeheartedly support that. And it's so funny you talking about the, uh, the problems with Louis Suarez that you had because the worst... Uh, experience I've had on Twitter was related to Luis Suarez back in oh, 2012 really? and that led to me yeah I got into a really horrendous situation with a with a Manchester United fanzine who, who, won't, oh. who won't name on here because they don't they don't deserve that the oxygen of publicity but yeah that got so bad that that led led to me having the exact same approach you have which is never respond just immediately block a because as you said it's just not worth it and b it's funny because it clearly winds up the people who are looking to get into an argument with you as well so yeah no very much in the same way that very very yeah uh, oh i don't know funny is the right word but interesting that it's all both of both of our approaches have been well not your approach wasn't based on louis suarez but i guess you've had to deal with it with louis suarez mine was based purely on something i a situation i had with suarez yeah he really is a massive troublemaker that man um yeah just the same question i asked to andrew as well I asked to you as well have you ever considered coming off twitter uh no no i haven't um <laughs> i think twitter on balance enhances my enjoyment of following football particularly yeah. I think it enhances my understanding of the world I think news breaks on Twitter that's just how it works now it's not perfect and I could speak for hours about how poor Twitter are themselves from a tech point of view at stamping down on abuse and racism mm. because they are so damn hot at getting rid of copyright you know if a goal goes yeah. in and someone's got you know it's down within five minutes I've had my account suspended because I've 
retweeted a um it was, it was years ago now but they're so quick on that for me I find Twitter to be positive particularly when it comes to Arsenal because as I said many times I've curated my what I see um oh. so that I don't see things that I don't like the one thing that I really just hate about social media and that always makes me kind of reconsider is what's the best way of phrasing this we all have an ability to be a dickhead right we all have nasty things to say about people that is never going to go away so I don't really agree with this kind of hashtag be kind type thing everyone is going to be a dickhead at some point unfortunately what I think social media does is give you give you a platform to tell every single thing or every single person that you don't like them or you don't like it whereas before you know you just if, if someone's pissed me off I just send a nasty whatsapp to, to one of my friends right we all do it <laughs> yeah. you know that's what MSM was so good you know you just have a little bitch about your friend we yeah. all have that within us and I'm yeah. not saying it's a good thing but what social media does and particularly Twitter is like you watch something on TV and people feel emboldened to like tweet at the actors telling yeah. them how much they hated it and I'm like just if you don't like something, just tell your mates, have a little bitch about it in your private yeah. WhatsApp group. That is not, that does not need to go on Twitter. You don't need to constantly tell everyone that you don't like something. You don't need to, we don't need to be constantly telling people criticism that's not constructive. Yeah. And so again, I would go back to what I would be telling kids is that, look, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be mean about something, don't do it in a public forum. There is, there is a space for that. And that is a private message between you and your mates. I'm not endorsing being a dickhead, but I'm just saying that I think we have an outlet and unfortunately social media gives that outlet in the public space when it should be in private. Yeah, we've very much lost the art to bitch in private, haven't we? We need to get that back. We just have, like, we just, <laughs> like, it's awful. But, you know, that's what MSN was for. You know, you'd be bitching about your friends in private. Yeah. Look, we all have that about us. And I really hate this, like, or be kind of course that is the absolute like bare minimum but if you're going to be a dickhead don't do it on twitter do it in private all right that's the next level up you don't need to tell everyone that you know oh, i saw you in this and i hated you you're crap that's for your whatsapp group no. or that's for your head it doesn't need to come out you don't need to constantly tell the world stream opinions on everything you know yeah we've lost the art of a good bitch in private basically yeah yeah, let's all bitch in private. I love a good, I still love okay. a good private bitch despite being on Twitter. Um, excellent stuff, guys. Right, let's actually talk about Arsenal in terms of your association and, and um, with the club and, and your support for it. And let's go back to the start, origin stories. Now, Laura, you might have the best origin story uh, ever, your reason for supporting Arsenal. I think I've got this right. It's what you discussed with Craig on the Football Kit Memories podcast, which you did a few months ago. Um, it relates to your first boyfriend at school. Is that right? I've got, I've got that right. You're nodding. Right? Yeah. Do you want to tell this story? Because it's probably the greatest origin story of all time for why somebody supports a club they support. Yep. So um, the boy in my class uh, was Joe Winterburn. Um, so he must have been, gosh, year two. So maybe 10, 10, 11. Uh, and all, all the girls fancied him. Um, but he was my boyfriend. <laughs> Uh, and by, by boyfriend, I mean, we never spoke during the class. Uh, we just went home and, and spoke to each other on MSN. Um, but yeah, so Joe Winterburn, son of Nigel, uh, was my first boyfriend. Um, and after that, I figured better start supporting Arsenal, basically. Um, he did dump me brutally uh, after three weeks, which I've just about got over. Um, <laughs> just, I could have been, could have been a Winterburn. Um, that is that's, amazing. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's my sort of earliest memory of, of Arsenal. Basically. Is that literally why I spot Arsenal? Because you dated Nigel Winterburn's son? 
that and my brother was an Arsenal fan because yeah. um, James, who is Joe Winterburn's older brother, was in Andrew's year as well. So obviously Nigel was seen, you know, on the sides of pitches at my school. Um, and so that's why Andrew, my brother, decided to support Arsenal. Um, and then I obviously went out with Joe. Fantastic. Andrew Allen, why do you support Arsenal? We're in the same class as Lee Dixon's daughter. I wish I could say that or something is equally exciting. Um yeah, dad was an Arsenal season ticket holder. My grandfather's on both sides uh, used to pop along as well. So, yeah, it's just been one of those things that I've grown up with. Um, you know, there were North London roots. I've kind of got um, half the half the family's Greek Cypriot, so kind of a big community mm-hmm. up in North London. And um, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things that has always been there in my life. And um, yeah, I'm kind of thankful for it on some levels, and obviously curse it every day. <laughs> And that's why I follow you on Twitter, because you're coming out with lines like that. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I was going to have a sort of chat with you guys about your experience in Arsenal. But what's kind of – I'm going to do it in a slightly different way. And it worked out really well. So anyone who listens to this podcast knows that uh, when I get guests on, I ask them to pick, pick their all-time 11s, which is the best uh, 11 players in any formation they like. They've seen during their time supporting the club they support. So Andrew and uh, Laura have both kindly provided all-time 11s. Uh, from their time, the respective eras supporting Arsenal. And I think what's really interesting is how they sum up your respective eras. Your 11s just really kind of crystallise your sort of experience of supporting Arsenal. So I'll go through the two 11s first. So, Andrew, yours is in the 4-4-2 formation. Uh, your goalkeeper is David Seaman. Your back four is Lee Dixon, Tony Adams, Sol Campbell and Ashley Cole. Your midfield four are Anders Limpar, Patrick Vieira, Cesc Fabregas and Robert Pires. And your, uh, your two attackers are Dennis Burkamp and Thierry Henry. Laura, who's 10 years younger, uh, her team in a 4-3-3 formation in goal, Wojciech Szczesny, uh, back, f- uh, back four, uh, Nacho Monreal, Per Mertesacker, Lauren Koscielny and Ashley Cole. Midfield three of Meza Ozil, Cesc Fabregas and Alan Ramsey. And your front three are Robin Van Persie, Thierry Henry and Alexis Sanchez. So they're really, for me, neatly, essentially pre and post Invincibles um, Arsenal. You've taken in sort of context purely of Arsenal, uh, Wenger's time at the club. And Laura, you said something to me really interesting when you, when you sent over the team and we had a little chat on it via, via direct message. You said, um, I feel afraid of the Arsenal old guard and that I'm made to feel a lesser Arsenal fan because when I think about Arsenal, I don't think about Pires, Vieira, etc. Um, you've got a member of the old gold old guard here in Anjou. Do you want to <laughs> tell him why he's such a horrible, uh, unreasonable <laughs> bastard? I mean, I, th- I think this is this is a tension that's felt in in lots of clubs, but I, I feel it quite strongly as someone who is. I, so I'm, I'm nearly thirty, and obviously I was around and conscious of Arsenal when it was the Invincibles, that kind of era. But if I'm hand on heart honest, I wasn't a massive Arsenal fan then. I really didn't start following them week in, week out until I was, you know, I'm talking 20, 2008, 2009 is really when I started watching. So by all means, I understand how great some of those players were. But for me, they don't, um, I did not see them across the season. I've seen clips of them. I've seen highlights of them. I have seen the Dennis Burkham flick a million times. But that, for me, feels like an era that I am not part of and therefore mm. pretend that that I understand and can appreciate that era of football feels slightly disingenuous. Um, and as I said, I, I've, I've done a bit of work for Arsenal, particularly on their Twitch channel, um, where we often do things like 
go through the sort of you know best 100 goals and I caused quite a stir a couple of weeks ago when I said that genuinely I, I felt that like the um, Wilshire goal against Norwich was better than the Dennis Burkham goal against Newcastle um, and that really set certain <laughs> older members of Twitter absolutely absolutely furious with me I had some seriously angry messages about disrespecting Bloody uh, the club. Um, to your point around people taking it too seriously I was a bit like Jesus like relax um but I think there is still a bit of a there is a bit of that in our old guard if you will of you don't understand uh what 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 some of these players were like and I just have to hold up my hands and go no I don't I, I yeah. don't understand I was never there so I can't in all honesty put my hand on my heart and go yeah Bobby Pires was the best I'm like I'm sure he was brilliant but that yeah. wasn't part of my time and that's not part of my arsenal yeah, that's that's really interesting and definitely a very, very over-top reaction. I mean, for what it's worth, I I, I personally think Burkamp's goal is better, but equally, I actually think Wilshire's goal is kind of underrated, not spoken about enough. I think it's one of the best goals in the Premier League era, and I just kind of find it mad that ge- people generally don't talk about it enough. Wilshire, Pozzola, Giroud, gets it back through. Wilshire, onside, and scores. Norwich, completely static, and caught out by the through ball from Giroud. And the eventual finish from Wilshire. Wow, what football this is from Arsenal. Absolutely unstoppable. One touch football. It's just beautiful to watch. Because all the starts it with the run. And here it's all about confidence, one touch vision, little flicks. Look at this. It's just an unbelievable goal. Surely a contender for goal of the season. Not many teams can produce this kind of magic. Andrew, your team, uh, I told you this as well, your team is uh, strikingly similar to to Tim Stillman's team that he did for this podcast as well. There's only two differences. Uh, he picked Bakary Sanya instead of Lee Dixon at right back and he picked David Rowcastle instead of Anders Limpar in midfield. And I think what that sort of, what that, sort of shows and highlights is how for a certain generation of Arsenal fans, so to go back to what we were saying at the start, those in their sort of late 30s, you know, mid to late 30s, going to their 40s, um, there's just kind of a defined set of players, aren't they? You, there's, you know, Arsenal had loads of great players, but if you did see the Invincibles and any of those Arsenal players in that sort of 98 to 2004 period, they just stand above the rest, don't they? I mean, Burkham and Henri just have to be your your attackers, Campbell and Adams just have to be your centre-back, Seaman has to be your keeper, Vieira has to be in midfield. And you just saw some absolute giants and iconic players during that period, especially, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned to you when I sent it over, like I, I listed about 11 players as substitutes because I felt yeah. guilty about who I'd left out. And, you know, more than anyone, Ian Wright, who was literally a childhood hero, yeah, would be someone who I should put in that team. But because Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry, who came after him, well, I say, after him, I mean, Burkham and Wrighty shared the pitch, were just part of a team that achieved so much. It's so hard to sort of look past them. But I mean, I would in no way, shape or form expect anybody to pick a team like this and not have a personal attachment, like the memories of actually watching that player do what they do. You know, I mean, I pretty much stuck Anders Limpar in because of one goal I was there to watch. I happened to be there, you know, on the North Bank when he lobbed, uh, I can't remember the Hooper, the Liverpool keeper from about the halfway line in 1992. You know, that's a personal memory. And it's basically just become this thing in my head that, right, he goes in the team every time because that moment gave me a lot of joy. Turning into Winterberg. The greater appetite here is Arsenal's, quite clearly. Ian Rush has to join into the line of defenders that Limpar. 
What's he trying? with the, the the back five which that I've picked you know Seaman Dixon Adams Campbell Cole I mean you know Adams Dixon and Seaman were basically around for so long they spanned so so I mean it's almost impossible to ignore them Sol Campbell mm. I mean was just such a massive massive signing I mean you know that was literally front page news of the newspapers and uh, what he then went on to achieve with Arsenal in such a short period of time was incredible and uh, you know it was just there's so much sort of of the the anti-Spursness linked into that particular yeah, yeah. Uh, decision. And, you know, Ashley Cole, I could, I'm picking him because he's a great player. And actually part of that is he was a great player for England for all the years after he left Arsenal. I mean, it's, it's, there's no denying for me that he's the best, technically best player that we've had in that position. But I absolutely love Nacho Monreal. You know, he came in, quiet guy, didn't really speak English. I suddenly just became this kind of, steady Eddie who just sort of year on year grew and grew and grew and became, you know, became more and more liked and sort of probably ended as a sort of, you know, I'd say a proper kind of club legend really with a few FA cups under his belt. And that's what I love about, you know, these exercises is it kind of, they they do sort of test you and pull you in different Mm. directions. And, um, you know, you end up sort of making excuses and feeling a little bit guilty about it, but look, we're, we're blessed. We've had a lot of very, very, very good players play for this football club over the course of the last 25 years and a lot of success along the way and it's you know I think if you went and asked a Darlington fan to pick their favourite uh, 11 they might have a slightly easier you know job of it maybe if they happen to have one successful team I don't know I'm sorry to Darlington fans. <laughs> I a bloody clue about your history I don't know why I mentioned you but Darlington yeah. Twitter is going to come for you Andrew you yeah know. quite quite possible I'll have to delete my account yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Laura, going back to your team, I mean, uh, you, you, made the, you made the observation that the back four is pretty, uh, pretty horrendous. I mean, it's, it's fine, I guess. But I think what's really sort of striking, I thought, about your team is during, despite the fact you haven't watched Arsenal during a particularly successful period, there's been a few FA Cups in there, obviously. Actually, you look at it and you think that front six, so Ozil, Fabregas, Ramsey, midfield, Henri, Van Persie, Sanchez up front. You've, you've, you didn't live through the Invincibles, but you have also seen some absolutely brilliant footballers, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the Ozil pick will obviously divide opinion, but that's a very personal one because when we signed him, that was the first season I had a season ticket. Mm. Um, and I actually left work early to go and buy an Ozil t-shirt uh, shirt with the name on the back when, on the day that we signed him. Um, I just started a graduate scheme and I was like feeling a bit ill and I just got on the train from Canary Wharf to uh Highbury uh to get myself a shirt because I didn't want to wait so that's a kind of more more personal pick yeah. so I, I do think as you said we've had some brilliant um players I think Alexis was just absolutely electric to watch I just think we have not had them all at the same time mm. all firing at the same time as well um and and kind of the, the players that have surrounded them have not been that consistent level that we have needed to kind of make the most of them um but yeah when you look at it on paper you're just like what why haven't we achieved more? Um, and then you look at the back four and you're like, yeah, okay, that's fine. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, Laura, that you've been absolutely brilliant. I'm going to let you go soon. Get on, get on with the rest of your lives. Before we do, just a couple of things. Um, first thing, I think only feels right. We've sort of touched on it as we as we've spoken. Uh, modern day Arsenal. Um, so I said we're recording this on Wednesday, October the twentieth. Um, a very weird week for Arsenal because you're playing on both a Monday and a Friday. So we're bang in the middle of that week. Uh, the Monday that's just gone, you, you drew two all with Crystal Palace. A bit of a scratchy result, didn't play especially well. And then you've got Aston Villa on the Friday. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm struggling to kind of make sense of Arsenal at the moment because you started terribly. And after that 5-0 defeat to Man City, I thought, oh, this lot in real trouble. Then you had that brilliant win against Spurs. Uh, decent win against Burnley, I think, the week before that as well. Beat Norwich as well. Palace it wasn't great, but at least I guess you showed a bit of character to come back. I mean, sticking with you, Laura, so how are you feeling about modern-day Arsenal? You f- it looked like you'd escaped the banter era, but I don't know, it feels like you might be sliding back into it as well. I don't think we'll ever escape the banter era. Um, <laughs> I-, I feel very confused about Arsenal at the moment. Um, I, as I said, I don't understand tactics and I don't really understand formations, which makes watching Arsenal at the moment utterly baffling because I have no idea what they're even trying to do. I've got to say, I think most pe- people who do understand tactics don't quite understand Arsenal's tactics. Got to be just, honest, it's, you know, it changes I, so much. It's, <laughs> they are very, very frustrating to watch. And I think that's yeah. because there is no, um, there's no game plan for getting the ball forward. And I can't understand what the players on the pitch can't see uh, that we in the stands think we can see when it comes to actually passing the ball forward. Yeah. Uh, I know that's very simplistic, but that, that's the bit where I'm just like, I'm just bemused about why we can't score. Um, I think we are two steps forward, three steps back, basically. Spurs was a massive result. It was amazing. The mass hysteria, as with everything Arsenal, and then the mass meltdown from Monday night. <laughs> I'm very confused about watching Arsenal at the moment. I'm just here for the ride, basically. Yeah, I mean, that point, Andrew, that, that Laura just made about not knowing how Arsenal's plan ha- had to get up the pitch and attack. I mean, I was listening to the Arsecast literally this morning with, with Andrew and James, and they were making the exact same point. There seems to be a real confusion among Arsenal fans and those, you know, in inverted commas, who do understand tactics and, and things like that, about what Arsenal's attacking approach seems to be. That seems to be the big issue at the moment, that you're just not fluid at all as an attacking force. You're very unconvincing in that regard. Yeah, and I guess because we were so, so fluid under Arsene Wenger, who used to just collect little diminutive playmaker-type footballs like you know, they had, they were Panini stickers or something, um, we never had that problem. It never seemed to be something you had to think about creating chances. It was just it just happened in front of you, and it was yeah. whether or not you could get the ball in the back of the net and then try and keep out the opposition. Now, for the last, I don't know, it's, I mean, definitely dating back to the Emery area, it's, there's this sort of horseshoe football that takes place yeah. um, sort of around the, the penalty area and we really struggle for, for, for penetration. And I mean, I guess my frustration at the moment is I look at the team sheet each week and I go, oh, I'm quite excited about that. That looks quite good. And then we produce performances that are sort of less than the sum of our parts. And, you know, coming up to two years of Arteta, probably should be getting a little bit better. The players should be starting to look like they know what they're doing a little bit more. I know there's been a lot of changeover and I think that has given him a sort of stay of execution because, you know, there's a whole new faces to to teach, but I'm as confused as everybody else at the moment. And the thing is, I really want it to work for him because I think he's a really lovely bloke. I think he's really hardworking. I think he's really intelligent. I'm sure that he will have a good like career as a coach in the game. And I really want it to be at Arsenal, but there's just this nagging sense that it it might not be the right person in the right place at the right time. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say he's a nice person. I actually think he comes across as a bit of an arsehole sometimes. I've got to say, it's really <laughs> unnecessarily spiky. I think, he's, I think he loves himself a little bit too much, Mikel. I've got to be honest. I think your manager's <laughs> the other bloke who was on the touchline on Monday. That just that feels like a better fit. Big old Patrick there. looks um, He's a man. Well, you never, never say never. I mean, I think... Patrick needs a, a decent run at a club and it may be Palace is the, the, the yeah. place to, to do it, to just sort of consolidate his reputation a little bit. I think everyone was a little bit hands off. They weren't sure what his you know, experience at you know, MLS really counted for and going off to France and getting sacked and stuff. But yeah, look, I, maybe one day. I mean, there's certainly a few legends out there who'd love to take the job. I know like Thierry Henry is always sniffing around, but I think if Thierry Henry took the job, we'd probably end up in Division 5 or something. So. <laughs> Yeah, Laura, which legend do you want to take over Arsenal? I'm guessing Nigel Winterburn would be the ideal choice. Maybe. Um, I, I don't know what Fabregas is doing, but would welcome him back with open <sighs> arms. Um, I think he's too busy being a pundit and just living his life in Monaco. Um, still playing? Is he still playing? He's still playing. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I'd like Vieira, actually, because I feel like they would. it would bring a bit of fear into the, into the group. I feel like he would really... Um, maybe toughen them up in the way that we haven't been tough for about 20 years um whereas I feel like maybe Mikel is more of a you know uh, arm around the shoulder I'm just going to chew your ear off with some more tactics type bloke at half time so someone who's just going to give them a bit of a um, a bit of a rough ride maybe Vieira could be could be the one yeah yeah we'll wait and see um guys you've been absolutely excellent um I said I'm gonna let you get off before I do just going to ask you the final question, and it is the usual final question I ask on this podcast. Um, I'll stick with you, Laura, for this one. Um, I've got to say, actually, I think both of these answers could be absolutely fascinating, given the club we're talking about. Um, if you could go back in time and change one moment from your time supporting Arsenal up to now, it can be absolutely anything. It could be a goal, a game, a transfer, a very personal moment. What would you choose? Uh, I suspect mine might be the same answer, and I do remember this despite being very young but it would be the Champions League final um that we did not win uh because although I was maybe pretending to be upset by it my brother was distraught for days um about it so if I could go back in time I think that would that would be my one moment that I would change yeah, actually, on reflection, that is probably the obvious answer for that. Yeah, I, I thought there might be a yeah, sort of litany of things you'd change, but ultimately it probably comes back to Paris 2006, doesn't it? Is that, a, is that the case for you as well, Andrew? If you could change any moment in Arsenal's history, would it be going back to, to is it May 2006 and winning that game against Barcelona? Do you know what? I'm going to say something slightly different. Oh, interesting. Go for it. It is the quarterfinal of the Champions League in 2004 when Wayne yeah. Bridge scored for Chelsea against <laughs> Arsenal. Yeah, and Chelsea then went through, played Monaco. Monaco then went through and played against Mourinho's Porto. Mourinho became Mourinho, moved to Chelsea. Chelsea were, you know, dominant for a few years, completely knocked Arsenal off their perch. That invincible side should have won the Champions League. Mm. We were the best team left in that tournament. We were way better than Chelsea that year and we screwed it up. And I think it was a real sliding doors moment for the club. No, that is a great answer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sort of butterfly, uh, yeah, butterfly so wings. Hole, basically, yeah. can you tell? Can you tell how much I hate Mourinho? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I think, <laughs> well, I think we're all shared, shared in that hatred, shall we say? Um, guys, you've been absolutely brilliant, Laura and Angie. Thanks very much. Cheers for having me. Thank you.